Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Over the last several weeks, we had a short series, a topical series on family values, and we hope that that was helpful for you and impactful for your family. And uh, if you're just joining us uh, this week or watching online, our regular cadence here at Candeo is to uh, walk through books of the Bible or large portions of Scripture, just kind of verse by verse, and to, and to see what God has said in His Word. And so uh, today we begin our series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And so if you're new or if you're a student just getting back in town, this is a great time for you to jump in. But like I said, we teach the Bible here at Candeo. And the reason that we teach the Bible in the way that we do is because we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and that it is profitable for teaching and for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. The Bible is true, the Bible is God's Word, and that the Bible doesn't give us the option of just seeing it as a good book, as something that's kind of like helpful for life, but you know, there's some things in it are helpful and there's other things that we can kind of throw away based on uh, how much it offends me or not. We don't believe that. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and that we must conform our lives to what we see in the written Word of God. The Bible is God's written word given us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is true, which is different than what you may hear from a lot of people in your circles, what you may hear from, profess- from professors this semester. Uh, one objection to the, to the truth of Scripture that you might hear from time to time is that, well, the Bible can't be true, uh, especially the New Testament, the Gospels, the Gospel of John is in the New Testament. The Bible can't be true because, um, because it, those books were just written written by church leaders to consolidate their power. When in reality, the Gospels, the books of the New Testament, were actually written too early for that to be the case. Here's what I mean. Is that if if the the books of the Bible, the books of the New Testament in particular, were written during the lifetime of many of the eyewitnesses. And why that's important is because if you were going to write something about Jesus, about the church, about whatever, if you were going to write something to try to trick a whole bunch of people, you wouldn't, if you were in your right mind, you wouldn't write it and distribute it during the time that the eyewitnesses were still alive. Because as they would be reading your written account, they'd go, that's not what happened. What are you talking about? This guy's out of his mind. Like you just wouldn't do that. It would have never got off the ground. It would, have never, it would have never reached us to today. It would have been easily dismissed, thrown away as fault because the very people who saw it for themselves would have totally disregarded it and dismissed it. That's one reason why you can trust what we have here in the book of John. Another reason is if you're just going to consolidate power, why in the world would you ever write the things you did about the disciples? 
like the earliest of church fathers, like, like the apostles, the disciples, the ones who are with Jesus, they look like complete idiots in the gospels. Like you see them just kind of like bumbling around, even, even go into the epistles with, with Paul. Like Paul was a persecutor of the church, killer of Christians. That's a great person to build your movement on. Uh, Peter can't get his foot out of his mouth. Thomas can't stop doubting. And Judas, one of his closest disciples, betrays him. Why in the world, if you were trying to consolidate power, would you present the early church fathers in this way? The reason why I say all these things, there's, there's a variety of reasons you can trust your Bible. Those are just a few. But the reason why is because we can know that what we have in Scripture is trustworthy. And it is true. And so... We can trust that the Bible is true, and we can therefore trust that what it says about Jesus is true. And if you're like me, there have been times when you picked up your Bible, you've opened it up, maybe you've read, read just a little bit of it, and you've put it back down, and you've gone like, I don't know what that means. Like that's, that's normal, okay? Like you're not the only one. If you've ever done that, you are not, certainly not the only one. At least you and me have done that, okay? So like picked up the Bible and like, I don't understand what that means. I don't know why they wrote that. I don't know what its meaning is for my life. And the gift that we get here in the book of John is that John writes in his book exactly why he has written what he has. And we see this in chapter 20. You don't need to turn there. It'll be up on the screen for you. But John lays out very specifically why he wrote this book. And here's what he says. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written. These words that are written are true and they're written for a purpose. And that purpose is so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. That word Messiah, maybe in, maybe in the Bible you're reading, uh, it says Christ, but the same thing still applies. That word Christ, Messiah, literally means savior. Like Christ isn't Jesus's last name. I, I grew up kind of thinking like, oh, his last name was Jesus Christ. Like Joseph Christ, Mary Christ, Jesus Christ. And it's like, no, that's not his last name. That's like a description of who he is and what he came to do. Like Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Savior, Jesus, the long awaited one that all throughout the Old Testament that God had been pointing to as the one who would come into the world and save a fallen creation, restore them back to relationship with God. This is the one. This is the reason why John is writing, so that we would believe that Jesus is the promised one who restores relationship between us and God. And not only that, did you see what else he said? And by that believing, you may have life. Now, this life isn't just like life, like, like I'm conscious, right? Like this life that John is referring to, that Jesus came to bring, is like fullness of life. That our lives wouldn't just be like these black and, like black and white, unfilled lines, that we would have abundant, true, full life. Do you want fullness of life this morning? Of course you do. Maybe that's why you chose the major you did. Maybe that's why you chose the job that you did. 
Maybe that's why you bought the house that you did. Maybe that's why you live in the neighborhood that you did. Maybe that's why you have the hobbies that you have. Like, like in all of these things with the hope that, that this will somehow bring fulfillment, that this will somehow bring happiness, that I'll somehow have like, like a fullness of life as I walk into and experience and enjoy these things. Maybe that's why you're here this morning, actually, and that you've tried to find fulfilling life in all of these other things, and they've eventually run dry. Maybe that's why you're here. And you just figure, well, I guess I'll just give this God thing a, a crack, huh? What we're going to see in the book of John is that abundant life isn't found in pleasure, possessions, or power, but that true, full, abundant life is in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so as we begin the book of John here in chapter 1, what we're going to see in these first 14 verses, John is going to show us three things. He's going to show us three things whose purpose is to spur us on toward belief in this risen Son of God. And those three things that we're going to see is who Jesus is supremely, who we are naturally, and what he offers personally. Who Jesus is supremely, who we are naturally, and what he offers personally. And so John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John comes right out of the gate saying that Jesus is the Word. Now that seems like a, like, kind of like a strange description, right? But what's true about words? Words are like the primary, most powerful means of self-expression right? Like this is why Jesus in Luke chapter 6 says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think I mentioned a, a, a several months ago now that I had a teacher in high school who drank a Stanley thermos worth of coffee every morning, like before class. And even if I never saw the thermos, I always knew that that was the case because I could smell it on his breath. Like his breath had Stanley thermos coffee just coming out of it, you know? It was like, but you could tell what was in his stomach by, by the smell of his breath. And as the breath is to the stomach and like revealing what is in it, so words are to the heart. And revealing what is in it. It's the primary means of self-expression. And if you've ever wondered what God is like, he's saying, look to his word. But unlike the words that you and I speak that are sounds, the word that God spoke is a person. God's word isn't just a sound. God's word is a person. Hebrews chapter one says it this way. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself. Do you want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God, and Jesus is God. Chapter 1, verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the word was with God and the word was God. Now for you nerds who like your Trinity, like your Trinitarian doctrine, you know, things are going off, like go nerd out together later. I don't have time to get into it. But what we see here is that the word, so Jesus was with God, so distinct from was with God and the word was God. Distinct from God, but equal to God. Jesus Christ is God. You see, many like to affirm that Jesus is a good moral teacher who had some helpful things to say that we can kind of live our lives by. Maybe everything he said wasn't helpful, but there are a few things. Just a good moral teacher. The Bible never gives us that option. He never gives us that option. Jesus himself claims to be God. He said, he said before Abraham was, I am. I am the personal name of God in the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. I and the Father are one. Jesus himself claims to be God. He's, if, you are, if you are just a good moral teacher, good moral teachers don't lie about who they are to all their followers. The Bible never gives us the option to redefine who Jesus is as being other than or less than God himself. Jesus is God. And as God, we see that Jesus is the source of all existence. Look at verse three. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So everything that's been created has been created through Jesus Christ. He's the source of all existence, but not only that, he's the source of all purpose. Look at verse four. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. What in the world does that mean that Jesus is the light of men? It's as though, it means that Jesus is the source of all purpose and truth. That in the same way as when you enter a dark room, you, you, don't, you don't know what's in the room. You don't know the path through the room. You don't know how to get there without like jacking your knee on the table or whatever is in there. Like, like, Everything about the room has not been revealed until a light floods in. And then everything that is true about that room is revealed. Jesus Christ is the light in our darkness. And he is the one who defines the purpose of our life. Colossians 1.16 says it this way. He says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, check this out, all things have been created through him and for him. Through him, so how did everything get here? Through Jesus Christ. Now why is everything here? For Jesus Christ. If you're a college student this morning and you're, you're going, you, you talk about picking majors. I haven't even picked my major or I have, but I'm planning on changing it like 19 times this semester. Like, you're like, I don't know my purpose in life. Let me tell you your purpose in life. This is totally free, okay? Your purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. No matter what you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God the Father. Your purpose in life, see what, you're so, what we're so often focused on is what we do. Well, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I move here? Should I move there? Should I take that job or take that job? Or should I have that major? Or we, we plan out the what and never think about the why. God is much more concerned about why you do what you do than what you do. 
Our purpose is to glorify God. We were created through him and for him. You see, authors have the authority. Authors get to decide the, the plot of the story. And they get to decide the purpose of the characters in it. That's, that's what you get for being the author, for being the creator. That's where we get the word authority, authority. You have the authority to determine the purpose of everything that happens in the story. For my whole life, uh, my dad has been a woodworker. I would, I would consider him like a master woodworker. If there, whatever the top of woodworking is, I, in my mind, he's there, okay? So all my life, he was making furniture, mostly furniture. So like lamps, tables, he, he made a couch one time. I didn't know you can make that out of wood. Like, like there, he just does these amazing things, you know, boxes with dovetail joints. I don't know how that works, you know, all this stuff. And so one day, a few years ago, um, he brought to our house as a gift a rocking chair that he had made. It's right there. It's called a Maloof Design Rocking Chair. And it was handmade by my dad in his, like, woodworking shop. You know, like, he made that. I don't, I don't know how. I, I couldn't. You give me 100 years, and I would never make that. So, like, somehow he kind of, like, formed it out of this piece of wood, right? But my dad, as the designer, as the creator walked up to this huge slab of American walnut. It's right there. And he stood there and he got to decide what it would be. And he got to decide what it would be used for. And so after months of cutting and measuring and shaping and sanding and more, you know, more cutting, more shit like sanding, all this stuff and finishing and all that. What my dad did and what he does with everything that he makes is he takes this like custom hot iron and he brands into the side, handmade by Max Herring, his name. You can kind of see it right there because he's the creator. He determined what it would be. He determined that it would exist and he determined what it would be used for and made into. And in the same way, if you and I could, could get down to like the molecular level of everything, of you and me and that chair and like every, and like the, the food you're gonna eat this afternoon, like everything that has been created, if we could just like get right down to like its smallest element, what we would see is like, like etched, branded into the DNA of everything, handmade by Jesus Christ. You did not create yourself. And because you did not create yourself, you don't determine your own purpose. But it is given to you by your creator. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus, which is why when we look to anything besides Jesus Christ as the source of our purpose and our identity, you will eventually be left disappointed. We, we know this to be true. Like, when we use things that aren't according to its design, it tends to be disappointing and at times dangerous. For example, if you decided to try to cook a steak on a space heater, that would be disappointing. The space heater would probably burst into flames, burn your house down, and or the steak would just taste bad. Why? Because it wasn't designed to cook steak. You're using it not according to its design. 
You see, you weren't created by your job and for your job. Which is why no matter how hard you work, no matter how long you work, the job's never done. You weren't created by your spouse for your spouse. Which is why your spouse disappoints you and you disappoint them. You weren't created by partying for partying, which is why the next morning feels a little yucky. You weren't created by money and for money. You were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And as a creation of Jesus Christ, you have a purpose. You go, I don't feel like my life has any purpose. I'm searching for identity. Jesus Christ has created you. You have a purpose. You are not purposeless. You are not unwanted. You are not unplanned. You've been created by the creator of the universe and given a purpose. And every attempt to live otherwise is a step away from life. You see, what, you see at times we can think Jesus is like the celestial buzzkill. Like, Jesus, just let me do what I want because I want to enjoy my life. But don't you see that when you live according to your own purposes and not his, that you are actually taking steps toward death and disappointment rather than life and light. So we see who Jesus is supremely. He's the very self-expressed word of God, creator of the universe, giver of life and light. Jesus Christ is God, who Jesus is supremely. And we also see who we are naturally. Look at verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see who we are naturally. We are not naturally God receivers. We are God rejectors. And I, and I, I, think, I think what happens is that at the end of the day, our big issue probably actually isn't the existence of God, it's the authority of God. The, the main issue, like if you really get down to it, usually isn't that people have an issue with God's existence. It's that we have an issue with God's authority. Now you may say, well, well, easy for you to say, I actually don't believe that God exists. Maybe you know someone who would say that. Maybe you know someone who would say, haven't we moved past this superstitious idea of supernatural creation? Hasn't science just explained everything? Well, if God doesn't exist, then everything must be explained empirically and it must be explained naturally. Everything. If God doesn't exist, needs to be explained empirically and naturally, which means that you have to live consistently with what you claim to believe, which means that every time you say I love you to somebody, it's not actually love. It's just a chemical reaction in your brain for the purpose of furthering your genetic code. That's the natural explanation for love. But there's something within you, isn't there, that goes, no, it's not just that. It's so much more than that. You see, if God doesn't exist, then survival of the fittest is the most natural thing in all the world, is it not? 
I mean, look out to nature. It's the strong eating the weak. So if God doesn't exist, then what in the world is all this fuss about justice, about equity, about honor, about respect? What in the world? Survival of the fittest, most natural thing in all the world. But there's something within you, isn't there, that says no. It ought not be that way. Why is that? It's because whether you believe in the existence of God, you can't help but live as though there is a God because God has written his law in our hearts. God has revealed himself in his creation and we can't help but want God to exist. If, you're, if there is no God, then nothing is truly good or objectively evil, all you're left with is social constructs that ebb and flow based on time and space and culture and race. So when you chase the rabbit to the end of the trail, you find that our real problem isn't with, God exi- isn't with God's existence, it's with his authority. Romans 1 says it this way. It says, for his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. You see, who we are naturally are people who suppress the supremacy of Christ and exalt the supremacy of self. That's who we are naturally. We've rejected the author of life and have rejected his purpose for our lives. We're cooking steaks on space heaters and we wonder why the room is smoky and the meat tastes bad. And so what did this supreme creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, how did he respond to natural creation who has rejected him? What has he done? He offers us something personally. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, how did Jesus Christ respond to our rejection of him? He didn't send judgment. He sent himself. The word Jesus Christ became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt literally means tabernacled, which for us isn't really that big of a deal. But for the, for the Jewish, you know, audience here who's listening to this, when they hear the word tabernacle, they immediately think of the Old Testament. That as God's people had been rescued from the land of Egypt, they're walking through the desert. God gives them a way for his presence to dwell with his people. He says, build me a tent of meeting. Build me a tabernacle out of animal skins. And this tabernacle was the display of God's presence and it was the place of God's forgiveness. The tabernacle, the place where sacrifice would be brought for the forgiveness of sin. Now God's tabernacle isn't a tent made of animal skin. It's a human made of flesh. And so this morning, do you want to feel God's presence? Do you want him to be near and to be known? Look to Jesus. Do you want forgiveness from your sins and peace with God? Look to Jesus. You see, everything the tabernacle was and provided, Jesus is and accomplished. 
And maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, that's, that's all good, but you don't know me. You don't know who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know what a mess my life actually is. Like I'm keeping it together now, but behind the scenes, I'm a mess. But don't you see that when Jesus Christ, Son of God, creator of the universe, came in the flesh, he entered your mess. Jesus didn't just like outsource the revelation of God. Like, like I'm going to stand back here and be all like holy and set apart. All this. Like, like you're too dirty. I'm not going to come close. I'm just kind of like yell across the ravine. No, Jesus Christ came in the flesh to get dirty in your mess. To take on your mess. To bear your mess so that you could be made clean not by the works of your hands. You say, well, I'm not good enough to come to God. Of course you're not good enough to come to God. You never would be. If you were, there was no reason for him to ever come. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and he jumped in your mess. You see, we went from a hopeless, verse 11, look back at verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Hopeless, rejected God. Went from a hopeless, verse 11, to a hope-filled verse 12. If, you, if you've liked a conjunction, you like it here. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. You see, the message of Jesus Christ come in the flesh is that there's hope for the hopeless. That there's life for the lifeless. That there is light for the searching, and that true life isn't achieved by the works of your hands, but it's received as a gift from his. True, abundant life isn't achieved. No wonder you're so tired searching after that job or that relationship or this much money or this much prestige or this much power or this much recognition. No wonder you're tired because you think that true life is something to be achieved by the work of your hands. But what we see here is that life isn't something that's achieved. True life is something that's received as a gift from the gracious hand of God himself and Jesus Christ. Are you longing for life? Are you longing for purpose? Are you searching for identity? Church, the search is over. Look to Jesus. He's the light for your darkness. He's the life you've been looking for in the balance of a bank account, in the arms of a lover, at the bottom of a bottle. He is true and abundant life, and he has come in the flesh for you. You see, when we refuse to be brought low, we rejected God because of his authority. When we refuse to be brought low, Jesus Christ was made low. He came and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death you deserve to die to give you life by the power of his resurrection. See, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. And it doesn't matter how long you've been there. You are not too far gone to have life in Jesus receive his free gift of salvation, have life and life to the fullest. You see, these things 
were written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. Believe in Jesus this morning and receive in him the life you've been looking for this whole time. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for coming in the flesh, for jumping in our mess, for not being a God who is far off and distant, but being the God who is near and present. Father, I pray that for anyone who has yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ, that you, by your spirit, would open their eyes, awaken their hearts, and bring life through faith. God, would they put their trust in the finished work of Jesus and receive life in his name, life that can only come from you. Oh God, would we stop from our searching and stop from our striving. Thank you for your finished work, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.